Welcome to Real Estate Investing Abundance, the show for busy, fulfilled professionals like you to learn how to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Now, here is your host, Dr. Alan Lomax. Hello, enlightened investors. I'm your host, Dr. Alan, and it is great to be back with you again today as we talk with Alex Olson and learn how to identify cash flowing deals to ensure our 1031 exchanges make money. So, Alex, share with us a memorable experience from your formative years that helped you to be who you are today. Yeah, I appreciate that question. You know, I grew up on a farm in the Midwest. And so a lot of my formative years were spent doing hard labor. It's not like it was hard, but that's a common term. Farm work (laughs) is hard work. I know it is. Yes. I've done some of that. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time helping my dad. You know, we didn't have a ton of money. We didn't have a ton of opportunity, but my parents were both kind enough to really shape my work ethic, so to speak, both very different parents in terms of style. My dad was, you know, really relaxed isn't the right word, but he'd get everything done he needed to, but enjoyed just life in general. My mom enjoyed getting things done. And so trying to learn from both of those at a couple different times was a lot of fun. It was also really challenging. And, you know, working with hogs, you know, on a pig farm was not my favorite thing to do. And I knew right away that I was never going to be a farmer. But I took a lot of that kind of physical nature of things and the appreciation for that into the real estate world. I still tell my dad that, hey, even though he's retired now, that you're a farmer, you're actually still kind of in real estate because you have to cultivate the land, you have to keep the land up, all those kind of things. And looking back on my life now, that really formed how I feel about real estate and wealth and uh, the opportunities that lie within that. What part of the Midwest did you grow up in? Uh, I grew up in Nebraska between Lincoln and Omaha, which is, you know, farm country, so to speak, but it's also close enough to the town to between Lincoln, Nebraska and Omaha, Nebraska, that, you know, we still had a town life, so to speak. My mom was from Lincoln. So it was a lot of fun, but it was also a lot of, I did a lot of things I didn't like doing. (laughs) (laughs) I spent some time in Omaha about, actually lived there about two years in my mid twenties there. Fun town. Yeah, it it is an interesting town, surprisingly, to a lot of people. Uh, My uncle had a farm, actually, in the middle of Nebraska, around the North Platte area there. Oh, wow. Got to spend some time on the farm there with him a couple of summers, which was, I was young enough that he let us play more than work us. So farm life to me (laughs) was fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, it definitely can be. You know, it's how you look at things and what you enjoy doing. And there are certain things I definitely enjoy doing, but being on the hot sun all day, all the time, I don't mind getting my hands dirty. You know, I do, you know, from a apartment investing standpoint, you know, I like to do actually a lot of the handyman work. I don't so much anymore with time, but it wasn't that was the issue. It was just, you know, man, I'm here in the middle of the sun for hours and hours and hours with no end in sight. (laughs) And also to boot back in those days, you know, you didn't make a ton of money on the farm. So that was the big factor for me growing up was like, man, and my dad didn't care. I mean, he worked hard and my mom worked, but it was like we had 600 acres of farmland that we were living on and enjoying. And my brother and I had a good education and great friends. And so 
the money wasn't that big a deal to them, which I appreciated. But for me, I was just, you know, really kind of demanded something more from a financial standpoint, I guess. Well, tell us what a 1031 exchange is. Many of our viewers and listeners already know what that is, but there are certainly some of our listeners who are kind of new to that concept. So tell us what is a 1031 exchange? Yeah, so a 1031 exchange is a federal IRS tax guideline, so to speak. I'm going to put it in the basic, simplest terms that allows you to sell a property, investment property in real estate and defer those taxes that you would owe on that property you sell by buying another piece of investment real estate. And it can be, it must be for higher or equal or higher value than what you sold your other property for. And there's a couple other smaller pieces. I call them smaller pieces to the debt side of it, but but they're not really that important unless you're really trying to get creative with your exchange and you, there's a ton of opportunity out there and you're trying to invest the best opportunity. But that's in a nutshell, selling a proper investment property and deferring taxes by buying another investment property for equal or greater price. So essentially you're kicking the can or the tax can down the road. Yep. And of course you can do that infinitely. There's no end game to that. You could do that till the day you die, essentially. Is that not correct? Or? Yeah, that's correct. And the gains on that actually die with you. So when your heirs or whoever you know is in your will that's inheriting your property, their tax basis essentially starts over. And so it's a good investment from that side of things if you really think about that. Or you know, you're like, man, I just don't want to put my family under so much strain when I die because all these taxes are going to owe. Well, that isn't the case, you know, with the completing 1031 exchanges. Yeah. So a good way to, I mean, over a lifetime, that could be a considerable amount of money. And the more your investment portfolio goes, the more valuable that 1031 exchange is going to grow right along with it there. Yeah, absolutely. And the other kind of interesting point to it that I get asked a lot is what kind of property can I exchange into and out of? Do I have to buy the same asset class or type? Or And the truth is you can buy any asset class with an exchange as long as it's used for investment purposes in real estate. So you can't sell real estate and then invest it in the stock market. And you can't sell stocks and use a 1031 exchange to invest in real estate. But beyond that, you can buy farmland with it. You can buy skyscrapers. You can buy empty lots, whatever your best opportunity for you is. So a lot kind of change is real estate, essentially, and any kind of real estate, single family to multifamily to whatever is a real estate. The thing that is not possible to do is if you are investing as a limited partner, as a passive investor, and you are invested in the LLC or the corporation rather than the property directly, that's not exchangeable. Yep. Correct. And vice versa. You can't go from a property to an LLC. So it's a great vehicle, but you need to know what you are going to do in that. So it's very important to have a mediator like yourself. In fact, it is required. Is that not correct? You cannot do it yourself. 
So the best way to put it is, yeah, you need to find a qualified intermediary, often termed a QI that can help you. Essentially, what they're doing is they're taking control of your money so you don't touch it. That's the key to the IRS statute is you can't touch this money in any bank account that you own once that property sells. So before closing, you have to select, identify a QI, qualified intermediary, to look at your you know, funds and make sure it's all up to snuff. And they put it in their escrow account, essentially. You know, a lot of title companies have their own qualified intermediary process that they use. But I always prefer to use an expert that does them all of the time, like thousands a year, because they will, the right term might not be let you do things that you want to do, but they will allow you to maximize the 1031 exchange rules. And one of those is you must identify up to three properties within 45 days. And depending on who your qualified intermediary is, they may allow you to send them an email, a text message, or whatever at midnight on that 45th day, which believe it or not, I've had clients do, I don't know about midnight, but you know, definitely on the last day, identifying properties because it's been a struggle. Maybe something goes in and out of contract and they're trying to desperately now re- evaluate what they're going to identify. You don't have to close on in that 45 days, but you can, for, for the simplistic nature of it, you can identify up to three properties. And there's ways you can identify more than three and all that kind of stuff. But the basics is three properties. You can close on all three of those, or you can close on one of them. It just depends on what's in your best interest. We'll be right back after a brief announcement. Are you a busy professional, passionate about the work of your calling, yet realize that even though you love what you are doing, you're exchanging your time for money? You know that if you were to lose the ability to exchange time for money, your financial well-being will be in jeopardy. If you can relate, I have great news. Steve Tucker Capital is an investment company designed for professionals to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. Remove the anxiety of an uncertain financial future and go to steedtalker.com. Get your free one-page 10-step guide to passive real estate investing. And just that your regular title company is not going to know all of those idiosyncrasies that go into that. And there are those idiosyncrasies within that that an expert can help you with that just a regular title company is not going to do. The other thing is, of course, the one thing about the 1031 exchanges that is laid in concrete are the dates. And you just mentioned that 45-day date, but that's not the only date. Is that right? There's an right. date yeah, so for closing, right? The first date is, yes, 45 days from the date your property that you're selling closes. And we call that the down leg you have to identify these three properties. The other key date is from the date your down leg closes, you have six months to close out one or all three of those properties you identified. And that's, you know, it's not after the 45-day window that you get six months. It's from the day that property closes. So sometimes it seems like a long time, but I've had clients where their first two properties that they identified didn't work out. Now they're on their third property and oh, by the way, now it's been about five and a half months and the seller says, hey, I want to extend the contracts. Like, whoa, whoa, hang on a second. We got to think about this here. Are we going to hit this window or not? So it does impact 
you and just, you know, make sure that when you're getting to that point, you put it on your calendar. <laughs> um, I must absolutely close by this date. Because there's no forgiveness from the IRS perspective. One day after six months, the deal is off. Is that right? Yeah. There's no flexibility on the time. They don't care about holidays. They don't care about, you know, you're sick or you broke your leg or whatever. You know, it's it's the calendar days. So very important considerations there. Well, you are an investor yourself and one of the markets that you like the most is the Kansas and Missouri markets in terms of the cities in Kansas and Missouri. So what do you find so attractive about those particular markets? So that's a great question. And I think the first thing that has to be put out of the way, and and this would I suggest to any investor is you're always looking at your home market and your home market can be anything from where you live now, where you used to live, where you have family, where you go to a lot, look in those markets first before you decide where you're going to invest in. And so then that brings me to, I just happen to be living in the Kansas City market right on the border, which is great for me because I have my real estate license in both Kansas and Missouri. And even though I'm from Nebraska, I liked, and I do love the Kansas City market because it is a fast-ish growing Midwestern city. It has all of the major sports teams, which believe it or not, helps with uh, publicity and investors and you know getting noticed. Then you also lop on top of that the fact that we don't specialize in any specific industry. We have a little bit of tech. We have a lot of health. We have animal health. We have agriculture. We're also located in the central you know, U.S. where there is tons of rail cars. So rail lines move through here. So what does that do? That actually produces a lot of blue collar jobs that are in the e-commerce and freight industry. And then we have more progressive things going on, like the new $2 billion airport. Infrastructure is always a big deal here. And a downtown that's being revitalized. And the population is, you know, 2.2 million. So it's pretty self-sustaining, top 30 MSA. So all those factors are a good starting point for why that's, you know, a good solid city. And then you add on that it's a very landlord-friendly state and region. So there's no rent control. And what that really means is you can take, depends on your personality and style and how you like to invest. But once a lease is up for a tenant and you you buy a property, you can then move that space to advertise for market rate. So let's say they were paying 500 bucks because they've been there for 25 years. They move out because they move out of the country or state or whatever. Then the landlord can increase that to the market rate, which is, let's say, $1,000. So that's beneficial. You know, there's other landlord-friendly laws that apply as well related to leases and how more landlord-friendly the lease language can be and protects the landlord. And that applies to both the Kansas side and the Missouri side. They're not identical, but I own properties in both states and they're pretty dang similar. There's just a couple of nuances that really have no material impact on a, on a property owner. So how can out-of-state investors, which many of our viewers and listeners are out of Kansas and Missouri area, 
how can they take advantage of these attractive opportunities in these two areas? Well, the best way, of course, is to reach out to you know commercial brokers like myself that are going to have a pulse on what's going on. You can read all day, and I recommend it too. You can read all day all you want on CoStar reports, market reports for Kansas, Missouri, which are all very good. But even those are always a little bit outdated from the second they come out because of, as we know across the country, how hot the multifamily market is. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, researching top brokers is key, reaching out to property managers. And the reason why a broker should be a good resource is because they're going to be able to tell you who to contact on a property management side, which has a big impact. Insurance, believe it or not, has a big impact. You don't want to use your local... I mean, you can, I guess, if you want, but I wouldn't want to use my local state farm agent to insure my you know, $10 million, $5 million multifamily property. I would want a commercial insurer. Attorneys, you know, you got to make sure that you have your ducks in a row with your LLC, no matter what state it's in. Actually, Kansas and Missouri... Missouri is a bit better. I'm told I'm not an attorney, but Missouri is a bit better from a LLC formation standpoint and the protections it gives you. So it's not a bad idea to have an L- L- Missouri LLC. And these are all things a broker should be able to help you when looking at the market. And then it really comes back down to what you as the investor are wanting. Of course, most people want the highest cash on cash return they can get. And then, you know, what's the risk in that? And so we've also seen some really good appreciation in properties that have sold, actually, that I've helped people buy over the last couple of years now selling here a couple of years later at 20, 30, 50% higher than what they're purchased for with not a whole lot of changes to those properties. And, uh, you know, there's good markets and bad markets. But the other thing about Kansas City and Kansas and Missouri in general, there's not a ton of D assets and D markets. That, you know, oh my gosh, you have to stay away from. Now, there are very specific blocks that, hey, I would invest in that. And that's where a broker can help you out with making sure that you don't go down the wrong neighborhood because it's more neighborhood by neighborhood specific. You know, if you look at a lot of people that I've interacted with, they're always asking about zip codes and, oh, what about this zip code? What about this zip code? And it's not that specific in this part of country. It's more neighborhood specific or block by block specific. Anyway, all those different kind of pieces to it should help your investors understand that the Midwest is a higher cash flow market. Typically, cap rates are between five and six, maybe seven percent projected on multifamily if you can find those deals. And then it goes up from there into other asset classes, you know, whether it's office, industrial or, you know, retail. So you say it's 5 to 6% projected. What are the actual cap rates? Yeah, that's a, another great question. And the funny thing I always talk about with multifamily and cap rates are, you know, it's a lot different than your commercial, which is income and expenses are pretty well set because the leases and management fees are already in there. And you have a lot of people, even the 5 to $10 million valuation of their property space, managing their own properties. Mm-hmm. And so they might come to you and say, Hey, Alex, I want to sell this you know, $5 million property. It's got a 6.5% cap rate in place. I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. great. Send it to me. So look at it. Well, he doesn't have a management fee in there because he's managing himself. He doesn't have insurance costs in there because it comes out of his 
you know, wife's bank account, you know, I mean, just different things like that. that are just so different than commercial. But to answer your question, a lot of times in place is somewhere around a 5% cap rate. I had a property actually, it wasn't my property, but I had, there was a property deal that I was working on for clients that was in place cap rate of 6%, uh, maybe even six and a half percent, depending on how you ran your numbers. And you could get that to seven and a quarter. And that was one of the best deals I'd seen in probably about a year. So those ones aren't very common, but I would say in place is somewhere around 5%. And then, you know, with some value add, you can get that up to six, six and a half, maybe seven, usually. Mm -hmm. So how is it that the best way to go about really when you're talking with sellers, and I guess if you're using a broker, you're actually going through the broker, but what are the questions that we need to ask to carry the conversation forward in a cordial uh, way, yet I guess a negotiable kind of way? Yeah. With the market being as hot as it is right now, sellers are getting calls nonstop, right? For their properties. Hey, you want to sell even though they bought it last year? You know, I talk to sellers all the time because that's the business I'm in. And I think you asked a really good question. You know, how can either through a broker or through even direct to the seller get keep and get their attention? And the easiest way is you have to prove right or wrong, you have to prove to the seller that you're a real buyer. And the fastest way to prove to a seller you're a real buyer is two ways. One, you have a track record of buying stuff, preferably in the region. If not, that's fine. Just have a track record. If you don't have a track record, partner with somebody that does and put their name on it. You know, step one. Step two, having some kind of, depending on your purchase price range, but having some kind of proof of funds or, you know, shows that you have the ability to take down certain size deals. If you could get that out of the way and prove to the seller that you're a real buyer and you have realistic expectations... Now, your price points might be 100% off, but at least you're showing them, hey, I have a, some kind of proof of funds or whatever, and also I have a track record. And with that, you can usually get foot in the door a little bit. Well, Alex, tell our viewers and listeners how they can get in touch with you. Yeah, so the best way to get in touch with me is going to be through email. And you can email me at alex at exchangecre.com. You can check out my website, www.exchangecre.com. And then one of my favorite ways is LinkedIn. And if you follow and connect with me on LinkedIn, you can see I'm posting on there quite often with latest deals, you know, trends in Kansas City, trends in multifamily and triple net lease opportunities. And uh, I think I was actually just meeting with somebody today. He's like, I'm really impressed with how fast you actually respond to me. So I try to pride myself on responding. And responding quickly, I may not call you or get you called back right away, but I do enjoy meeting new people and seeing if we can make deals together. Excellent. Well, Alex, I just have one last question here, and that is, what is one of your most difficult setbacks in life, and how did you come through that time? My most difficult setback was actually in real estate. You know, I spent the first 15 years of my professional career in consumer finance, not related to real estate at all. It was just all small dollar lending. And then I was kind of desperate to get out of my job, not because I hated it, just because I wanted to do something on my own. And I felt that real estate was my key. So I went out 
And the hottest thing at the time was Airbnb and long-term rental or sorry, short-term rentals, and Airbnb. And oh my gosh, people were making tons of money on this thing. So I went out and bought four large houses that, oh, by the way, I was turning into Airbnb houses for short-term rentals, but they each needed $20,000 in furniture. Mm-hmm. And so not only did I have all the cost of acquisition, then I had cost of all furnishing all these things. And then a year later, oh, by the way, the pandemic hits. So I had to essentially give two houses, really three of the four houses I bought, I either sold or gave back to the owner because they're on a lease purchase option and just said, Hey, look, here's the furniture and you know, you can take it and go back and sell it to somebody else. I can't help you with this. So that was the biggest setback because there was, you know, $150,000, which is a lot of money for me that I had, you know, there, I got nothing for. So that was not a lot of fun. <laughs> no kidding. And those kind of things just happens. Who could have foreseen the pandemic and what it would do to short-term rentals? So those kind of things happen and come out of the blue, it seems like. Well, Alex, it's been a pleasure having you today. Thank you so much for being with us. No problem. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to Real Estate Investing Abundance, brought to you by Steve Talker Capital, a company working for passionate professionals like you to develop financial independence built on solid, passive real estate investments. As part of our efforts to make the world a better place, Steve Talker Capital contributes to activities and organizations committed to better understand the equine. These endeavors attempt to enhance the human treatment of horses worldwide. Steve Talker Capital, working for a world where all creatures, great and small, flourish abundantly. For resources to develop your financial independence, connect with us at stevetalker.com.